stumbled onto the sleeping giant. Let's broaden our minds. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sleeping Giant podcast. I am your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte, and I'd like to say thank you for joining me once more. In this month's show, we're going to do something that we started talking about late last year, and as of last week, it finally came to fruition. We're going to start our much-desired John Wick series. Uh, I say much-desired, of course, most of that was on my part, I think. Uh, But we're going to begin with the 2014 film of the same name. I was a latecomer to the series, but believe you me, I am now a genuine fan. I'd come to discover that Papa Marcotte is also a fan, and he's a regular guest on the show, so we decided that we'd geek out over the flicks together. We'll be talking about the one film, and then we will be discussing films two and three in a subsequent episode. Now, if I'm feeling particularly froggy, which is quite likely, I'll do a mini-sode about the Dynamite John Wick comics. That's Those are the comics from the uh, Dynamite comic book publisher. Um, super looking forward to all this, friends and neighbors. I am really, really excited about it, I tell you what. In this episode, I'll also be discussing some of my uh, recent developments, I suppose you could say, in, in my personal fandom as well as some of the changes I'm considering for the future of the Sleeping Giant podcast. Also, we'd like to chat with it a bit, see, about the latest Glow series from IDW, now that that has wrapped. It's such a fun read, y'all. Uh, additionally, it just uh, it wouldn't be the same if, if I didn't at least mention Star Wars, <laughs> right? Anyway, y'all go on and get comfy, because we are about to begin. All right, then. So I am so glad to kind of start this show off on a very positive note because I read a lot of comics and oh, <laughs> what's the best way to put this? Not all of them are great. In, in fact, some of them I, I stop halfway through, midway through after the first five issues. That's my rule, by the way. For an ongoing comic series, I have a five issue rule, which sometimes sucks because you'll get an arc much later in the series that's just amazing. And as a collector, sometimes there are those quote-unquote speculative issues that uh, if you miss out on, you may say, oh, damn. Uh, for example, what was it? Um, Marvel Comics Presents number six, I think. I missed out on that one. I didn't show up to my local comic shop in time. That's uh, Emerald City, by the way, in Clearwater, Florida. Didn't show up there on time, so I missed that. And for some reason... I thought I had added it to my pull list. Apparently I hadn't, but long story short, it was a quote-unquote hot issue, and uh, I missed it. I ended up having to pay about 60 bucks for that on eBay, which totally sucked, but uh, I'm glad I have it. That was a wonderful series I really enjoyed. But anyway, long story short, um, five issues. Now, the one that I most recently read that I just absolutely love and head over heels for and can't say enough good things about is the most recent miniseries from IDW, or I should say the most recent Glow miniseries from IDW Comics. This 
is of course based on the Netflix television series that features the uh, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling and their producer manager uh, Bash Howard and uh, and their director um, Sam. So a uh, wonderful show. Um, hmm. Where should I start with this? Well, first and foremost, if you love the show and uh, you're a fan of the gorgeous ladies of wrestling, uh, Liberty Bell and uh, Zoya, I think, are, are, are sort of the, the flagship characters in that title, if I had to pick one. But it's just filled with so many amazing characters that are so much larger than life in their wrestling personas. Uh, you know, another one of my personal favorites, I think, would be... Um, Black Magic, uh, formerly Junk Chain, uh, of course the new Junk Chain Yo-Yo, uh, the Toxic Twins, formerly the uh, oh what was it, <laughs> uh, the Biddies. I can't remember um, what their exact title was, but they're just they're just all so so fleshed out and so um, what's the right way to say this? Relatable, I think. I believe. And these characters when I'm watching them, but they're just so, so well performed and so well acted. I love that show so much. And, uh, of course, Mark Maron as Sam is just, you know, he's, he's a gem. I love Mark Maron. Um, you put Mark Maron in and I'll watch it. Um, but yeah, so glow is just, it's a fantastic series. My wife and I are big, big fans. And, uh, so I thought that, uh, back in 2019, when Teeny Howard was writing for Glow, I thought I'd give it a whirl, and it blew me away. I, I could not get over how well the characters translated from the screen to the books, and the uh, the art by Hannah Templer. She did the art for the first four issues in 2019, and she also did the art, the interior art for uh, the last four issues from IDW. And I'm not usually a fan of the more cartoony manga style uh, illustrations, but in this particular series, it works with the stories so well, or stories, I should say, that I just I believed in the world. I and um, I was just supremely entertained by it. So this last one um, was written by uh, A.J. Mendez and Amy Garcia, and uh, and again, just blown away by how how amazing these characters, or how amazingly they came to life. Again, you had the uh, the art by Hannah Templer, and uh, the covers for this, the A covers for this particular series, uh, those were illustrated by uh, Rebecca, or, I'm sorry, um, Rebecca Nalti actually did the covers for the books, and the covers were done by Ver, uh, Veronica Fish. Again, those were the, the A covers. So why is this series so good, apart from the aforementioned reasons? Well, in Glow versus the Babyface, which is the uh, the last four issues, or rather, I should say, the last miniseries, Glow versus the Babyface, you have this situation where there is a child that turns up in their practice space, and <laughs> obviously, um, that's that's no good for them as adults, and uh, and of course, Sam goes through the roof. Um, but the point is, this child is is a big fan. Of the ladies, she's a big fan of the wrestlers, and uh, and it turns out that she really doesn't have anywhere else to go that is a, a safe place for her or an enriching environment, as it were, because her mother is uh, is very self-serving and neglects her child very often to uh, to pursue her own ends, 
which incidentally, or coincidentally, I should say, she is um, an actress trying to make her way. So you have a lot of similarities between um, the mother and the the ladies, and that they're you know a lot of them are performers, or rather they are performers. Uh, Liberty Bell and Zoya, of course, being uh, being the the quote unquote real actresses amongst them, and uh, so there are those parallels there, but. It has a, as, as the ladies sort of adopt this, this young girl into their tribe and sort of steer her um, in a more positive direction away from her larcenous, uh, mischievous ways, which now that I think of it, she fits, she fits right in to that group. Um, you have a situation where it's not as adult, say, as the television show, it's a little bit more accessible, I think, to younger audiences. Um, you know, there are there are a few curses here and there, uh, but there isn't. Um, I don't know. It's not as explicit as the show can sometimes be. And you have what ends up being what I think is a a wholesome story, which I know <laughs> sounds a little ironic, but it really is. And it you know just just watching these ladies take care of this girl and, and, and inspire her to, to be more positive, um, and to kind of rise above the shitty situation that she's in with help from her friends. You know, that's really what this, this last arc is about. And I don't want to get too spoilery as far as some of the things that take place, but that's really the, the crux of this arc is about friendship and having each other's back and looking out for one another and, and helping people, that uh, that are down and out. Um, specifically, one of the sort of sub stories or B stories in this is um, what you would call, I suppose, the the blossoming relationship between Beirut and Junk Chain, the new Junk Chain. Um, so yeah, it's it's really cool to get insights into those characters like that. I'm I am a sucker for um, seeing stories develop behind the scenes or off screen. I love expanded universe stories. And uh, as far as Glow is concerned, I, I don't think that, and this is going to be a bit controversial even in my own mind, I don't think that it gets much better than Glow as far as expanded universe stuff goes, um, except with the exception possibly of some of the stuff that Charles Soule has written for Star Wars, which of course we'll get into shortly but yeah i'd say that absolute favorites hands down expanded universe um teeny howard aj mendez amy garcia and charles soul those are definitely my favorites um so i want to kind of mention something that has been on my mind too since i started reading these books and it's i suppose one thing dovetails into the next and the world sort of leads you down these paths of, of realization and exploration. So when you take something like Glow, for instance, which is it's about women, it, uh, these comics were created by women, put together by women, the artists, the writers. Um, that's a fact, and it's very enjoyable. I appreciate it. So when I'm researching these things, um, I will, of course, refer to Instagram to get people's, 
usernames and handles. I'll refer to Twitter uh, to do the same. Sometimes if I don't remember a creator's name, I will go to Instagram, Twitter, or Google. And, uh, you know, it's... Twitter's a terrible place <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes it's really cool, but sometimes it can be really fucking terrible. And so while I was researching um, some of the names and, and previous work that, say, uh, Rebecca Nolte has done as far as coloring and, and art is concerned, I saw a tweet from, um, I believe it was Jan Bartel. It was her account. She's an amazing artist if you're not following uh, Jen Bartel, excuse me, Jen Bartel, if you're not following her, you should. Um, my wife and I got into um, Blackbird from Image Comics based solely on the art that uh, that she had done for it, and uh, my wife's a big fan. So anyway, I'm, I'm on her account, and she said something about how amazing Birds of Prey is, which, again, is uh, about women, created by women, and... Um, I'm I'm for it. I mean, I'm not a big fan of DC on the whole, and uh, probably less so Birds of Prey. I haven't even seen Suicide Squad, but I've heard great things about this movie, and I would like to see it. And uh, so anyway, she says that it's amazing, and she was basically giving kudos to everyone involved, and she said something towards the end of that tweet about how all of the cast was amazing. And then, of course, somebody came in and said, Oh, Ewan McGregor was great too. And, you know, Miss Bartell came in very politely and said, I did say all of the cast. So, you know, that seems somewhat innocuous. Um, and in fact, that person did come back and apologize. But it, it's just indicative of that sort of knee jerk response that you'll get a lot of times from specifically the male persuasion when it comes to, um, you know, people giving shout outs and trying to. Um, support something that they're invested in or something that they love that has anything at all to do with women. So that's just, that's a small example, but I wanted to kind of elaborate on that and that, you know, I'm part of some Facebook groups and, uh, you know, I follow certain groups of people on Twitter and Instagram, etc. And uh, somebody had posted an article about uh, Birds of Prey and how Ewan McGregor said something about how it was great because it identified or brought to light everyday misogyny, etc., etc. And someone had shared their article and they were like, well, I'm just not going to go see it now because this is too woke for me. Okay. First, let me go ahead and say that uh, as far as wokeness is concerned, I generally find the term annoying and I generally find uh, the people that tout that term annoying. I don't like extremism of any kind and a lot of times the the quote-unquote woke behavior gets it's too much for me. Um, you know I'm I'm a pretty simple person I think and I feel like I've got a good grasp on what's right and what's wrong and I don't care for extreme wokeness but uh, but you know, you have to you have to think and you have to consider where does that attitude come from? Like why why are people becoming woke as it were, okay? It's because there's this weird sort of notion that you should treat everybody with respect 
and dare I say kindness and acceptance. So there's extremism everywhere, sure, but you know what's really extreme? Being a fucking dick and, and uh, <laughs> you know, just not having time for anyone else or anyone that's different from you. And in this particular case, I am going to have to go ahead and speak to the, the overly sensitive male crowd, okay? Um, again, I'll say I don't like extremism. I don't like uh, the, the woke crowd and Twitter mob coming aggro at me. I, I really I don't care for that at all. I don't have time for it. But you know who deals with people coming aggro at them every fucking day, 24-7, okay? Now, I didn't set out to to make any type of political statement or be anyone's champion because because I'm not. Um, but the people that are closest to me, my wife and my daughter, well, they're women. Um, and I care about them very deeply. And, uh, I, you know, I know that at one point, I think it was maybe Matt Damon or, or some dude that said... Uh, in reference to how uh, women are treated in the world and, and in uh, American society, said something about, oh, these are our wives and our daughters and our sisters, and they caught a lot of shit for it, which I don't know if it was deserved or not, but but that's the thing is that you, you're, be, you're defining, or rather you're defining this group of people by their relationship to you, and you're forgetting, and again, I'm saying you, the general you, you're forgetting that that we're talking about people and their relationship to you doesn't matter. But in this, in this particular case, I'm trying to relate. I'm trying to relate that my wife and my daughter are people, but they're also people that I care very deeply about. And they have all of these similarities to all of these other people that are being mistreated and, uh, and, and not given any respect, the respect that any human being deserves. So, um, it's just, it's, it's obscene and it's stupid. Um, and I say this because, you know, my daughter, she is so, she's so bright and she is so clever and she's just this amazing human being. And, um, you know, she, uh, she's, she's just the light of my life. I love her. And she has all these questions and she has all these things that she wants to do. And so many things that appeal to her, and uh, and that's great. That's wonderful. It's it's the most beautiful thing I've ever observed in my life. But um, I and it sucks because in the back of my mind, uh, and even further than the back of my mind, it creeps to the forefront, knowing that she's gonna have a tougher time, and she's gonna have to deal with people assuming that she can't tackle these things that she loves and admires and wants to be a part of. So it's, it's, it's tough. Um, it's tough to, to see that and to know that. And I do the best I can in partnership with my wife to let her know and build her up so that she understands and knows that we've got her back in this, that it's, it might be a little bit tougher for her. It's going to be a lot tougher for her. Um, but that, she she needs to embrace what she loves and embrace what she admires and just throw herself into it fully and uh, and fight for those things that she loves and wants to be a part of and and really all i can say is that no matter what i will have your back your mom will have your back we 
will have your back. And I guess the point of all this, the point of what I'm saying, uh, Twitter sucks um, most of the time, but it, it, <laughs> it can be okay. Anyway, there are some cool people on Twitter, and it's one of those cool people that I'd like to mention now. Incidentally, one of the people or one of the accounts, I should one of the people, one of their accounts that I've really been enjoying on Twitter belongs to at Carriagewin. And I'm gonna I'm gonna include a link to her Twitter account uh, in the show notes. But I have uh, since been keeping up with the things that she's been posting on Twitter, and they are so insightful when it comes to some of the other things that I love, specifically comic books, films, and Star Wars. So if you are not following her already on Twitter, again, I'll provide a link in the show notes. Very cool person, very genuine person, and I've, I've really been enjoying the post that, that she's been making since I've started following her. So a little shout out. Thank you, Carriagewin, for doing all of the awesome things that you do on Twitter and making it a less offensive place. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so let's talk about some comics. Let's lighten the mood a little bit. And let's talk about those books that were highly anticipated by me that are finally here. We have The Rise of Kylo Ren 1 and 2, which teases us with the Knights of Ren and sort of gives us a glimpse into who they are and what they're all about. And possibly we'll learn the origin of the Knights of Ren. We know now that that the Knights of Ren are led by someone who calls himself Ren, um, interesting in that this person wears a mask similar to uh, a blast shield in that there's there doesn't seem to be any any outward or inward visibility of the mask and it is covered with this very Sith and evil looking rune. Uh, so you get the sense and in fact I think are, are specifically told that these are not Sith or even dark side users so much as they are dark side sensitives. They're force sensitives who embrace the dark side of the force. So you have this very interesting group of individuals that were introduced to uh, very slowly as the series opens. And you also are given glimpses of Snoke pre The Last Jedi and The Force Awakens. And you see how his slow, subtle corruption of Ben is very similar to the way that Anakin was introduced to and corrupted by the dark side with Sheev Palpatine, a.k.a. Darth Sidious. So it's all very subtle, and it is unfolding very slowly. The first issue uh, deals primarily with Luke sort of making his grave mistake with Ben and the resulting aftermath of that. You have three Jedi characters who Ben is classmates with, I suppose you could say, and they are taking it upon themselves to apprehend Ben Solo and try or attempt to bring him to some kind of justice. And <laughs> doesn't so far it doesn't work out for them very well as you can imagine. So this series has been very interesting. I was looking forward to it so much and it's finally here and it delivers in every way. Again, written by Charles Soule and uh, the dude just writes Star Wars so incredibly well. I think you've heard me say before 
that he's one of those cats that just sort of gets Star Wars. And uh, it's been very interesting to see this unfold. The second issue is out already, and uh, or it has been out for a few weeks. Very slow, the series is. I think it is, in fact, uh, once a month. And the second one deals with a flashback wherein we see that Ben Solo and Luke Skywalker have already encountered the Knights of Ren. So they're not brand new to Ben, even after he starts going down this dark path that we all know, uh, uh, the dark path that we all know and are familiar with, and ultimately where that path takes him now with the release of the film, The Rise of Skywalker. So very cool stuff. Very, uh, very Ben Solo centric. Though we have yet to see the Ben Solo that we were introduced to in The Rise of Skywalker, I'm hoping that, uh, and it's funny how hopes are now being heaped on top of hopes for these books that will eventually get a glimpse of that character that Adam Driver portrayed so well. Now, um, one of the cool things about the Knights of Ren that I would like to mention is even when, when I first saw them, my mind immediately went to the Nine from uh, Middle-earth, the Nazgul, uh, the Ringwraiths, because they're, I mean, you know, they're all black, hooded, helmeted, whatever, um, you know, very reminiscent of, of those guys. And uh, I thought that it was interesting that while not canon, it was pretty much accepted as canon and sort of like the legends, if you will, of Lord of the Rings. Way back in the day, they had these role-playing games by things like, um, I want to say ICE is the one that I'm thinking of, but very specifically, I remember there was a wraith and uh, his name was Ren the Unclean, uh, and that was spelled R-E-N. So I thought that was kind of cool. Maybe there's something to that name that, uh, that I'm hitherto unaware of and I should look into further. But even the names of the Knights of Ren are somewhat similar and reminiscent of the names of those wraiths from the ICE role-playing series. Like, uh, for example, the name of the Witch King uh, was Er Murasur. Um, you had another wraith called Dwar of Wal, uh, G Undur, Don Death. Um, let's see, what was another cool one? Oh, Adunafel the Quiet. Now that was actually a female Numenorean. So according to this thing that was canon, but not quite canon or vice versa, uh, you'd actually had a female wraith, which was very cool. And I remember in that book, she had a turtle shell helm, which was really, really neat. And I drew a picture of that once upon a time. Maybe I can dig it out and and uh, throw it up on the Instagram page or something. But So you have those names, uh, including Ren the Unclean. And then you have the names of the uh, the other knights of Ren, which is something like Aplek, Kuruk, Trugden, Ushar, Cardo, and Vikrul. So you know, it's easy for me to imagine attaching like a, a title, like a, what Trugden the Cruel or something like that, and it would totally be uh, a Nazgul. But anyway, cool stuff, cool parallels that I found. Maybe you did too. Uh, it's interesting to look into though. And uh, let's see, what else do we have? Star Wars one and two. So uh, with Star Wars relaunching or creating, I guess what you could call a second volume, it started again with number one. And as I think I mentioned in the last show, it takes place between A New Hope and, oh, I'm sorry, uh, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, which, again, my favorite period from Star Wars. So we kind of see what happens to Luke after he loses his hand. You get to see 
what happens with Leia after she loses Han, and uh, and sort of I, I think that's interesting because you know perhaps it was at that moment that the two of them realized their importance uh, of one another to one another, and uh, so very very emotionally heavy this period of time between the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Uh, Charles Sewell is writing this one. You also get to see how Lando's relationship plays out with everyone after he betrayed them on Cloud City. Uh, One of the things about Lando Carissian and Charles Sewell is that Sewell writes Lando so well. He, He really is that old smoothie, and you get to see him in full swing, in full operation, just being this this uh, this con man manipulator who somehow the odds always end up in his favor. You know, at one point it was suggested loosely that Han was force sensitive and that explained his luck, etc. And if that's true, then the same has to be true, probably doubly so for Lendo Calrissian. And uh, seeing some of the things that he does in this series, uh, we're, we're as far as issue two now, and seeing how he established his contacts on Tatooine with Jabba and uh, his cohorts, uh, cohorts, excuse me, is very fascinating, and uh, it's it's been a blast to read. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how this develops. So uh, speaking of Tatooine, Darth Vader number one was released very recently, and uh, that was a good read. I honestly I didn't know what to expect from it, so. It was a real surprise for me to see how briefly this first issue passed, how tense it was, how violent it was, and how the Darth Vader that we see in issue number one is a very natural progression from the Darth Vader we ended with in the last Darth Vader series. So, uh, you know, previously you had Anakin Skywalker having become Darth Vader, having undergone this transformation and being encased in that black armor slash life support system and learning how to exist as Darth Vader. Uh, So that's kind of where the series was at. But now, now with Empire, we have the, the established fact that Luke Skywalker is the son of Anakin Skywalker. And in this series, I think we're going to see how Darth Vader reacts to that emotionally, how Darth Vader reacts to the idea of the son of Anakin Skywalker uh, being alive and also being an aspiring Jedi Knight. So I think we're going to perhaps deal with the the emotional side of Darth Vader and not necessarily Anakin Skywalker, which, which is very interesting and very appealing to me. Um, so yeah, I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to spoil it. It's only the first issue, but man, is it intense you you have vader going back to tatooine which is something i thought that he would never do even though uh, it has been established that he has dealt with jabba the hut in the past in person on tatooine Um, but again i never thought that he would return to some of the places that he visits in this first issue with the intentions that he has so uh it's it's very interesting um one of the things that i found to be most most appealing, appealing might not be the right word, but intriguing about Darth Vader is how over the course of the series, 
he is almost a stranger in his own body. He's almost a stranger in to himself. And uh, I'm curious to see how that plays out. I'm curious to see if he's developed beyond that point um, since uh, since he was he was being written before. By I think Charles Soule had the last Darth Vader series. This is now being penned by Greg Pak, I believe his name is. He finished out the last Star Wars run, which was very, very good. So I think that this in turn will be a good series, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. Gonna be making some changes to the Sleeping Giant podcast. Sometimes I like to refer to the podcast as being part of the Sleeping Giant, which I would still very much like to be a collective or a base where I can continue to create and release projects, but also collaborate with other people. And I think that I did describe that in my first episode. And it sort of panned out to be something like that, I think. But for now, this is the Sleeping Giant Podcast, and it's most certainly the Sleeping Giant Podcast that you're listening to now. But I, I, I am going to make some changes. Now, what what does that mean exactly? It's going to mean more movie and TV reviews. It's going to mean more comic reviews. And it's also going to mean more giveaways. Specifically, I'll be giving away a lot of my stuff. And I will be featuring uh, certain sales before they go to eBay, where fans of the Instagram page or members of the Facebook page, whatever, can see some of the stuff that I'm going to be hawking before it goes to eBay. Because eBay, for the most part, it's at times a necessary evil, but it's uh, it's still pretty fucking evil. Um I've had some really, really bad experiences on eBay with people buying from me and taking advantage of the way that I package things and purpose purposefully damaging items and claim item not as described, etc. It's very frustrating because I, I feel that I'm a person of integrity and... Uh, and I don't try to rip other people off. So it's very disheartening and very discouraging when someone tries to do that to me. Now, on the other hand, I've also made a lot of money on eBay and I've been given a lot of very positive reviews on eBay for those same reasons. So I'd say for every 10 or 15 great sales, there is one fucking jerk that really uh, puts my tits through the ringer, as it were, and, and I have to kind of pay for that. But if it's only one every now and then, I suppose that is, as they say, the cost of doing business. So if I can't avoid eBay, I certainly would like to. So if any of you see anything over the course of time uh, that I post on my Instagram page, definitely feel free to give me a PM or DM or whatever the kids say these days, and we'll work something out because I. I'd much rather do things that way. Also, eBay takes 10% of the sale, which is just outrageous, uh, especially when you consider that PayPal also takes a percentage of the money that you're making. So all in all, it, it works um, as a necessity at times, but if you can avoid it, then uh, then definitely, definitely do that. Now, why am I giving away all of these things, and why am I going to be selling off so much of my collection? Well, the reason for that is because I just uh, I feel differently about collecting these days. Um, 
things like Division and fandom have just left a bad taste in my mouth. And and I don't dislike the things that I'm collecting, like the properties or the franchises or stories or whatever. It's just uh, I feel like I can love something without always having to show it off. I feel like I can love something without having to go to bat for it, whether that be through words in the podcast, on Twitter, or Instagram. Uh, you know, or I, I just don't think I need to surround myself with all of these things to kind of reinforce the idea that I love them. Now, understand that I am in no way criticizing or being disparaging of other people that collect and other people that choose to show their love for fandoms that way. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, as a negative. It's just it's becoming something that is not for me. Um, but that's not to say that I will be giving up collecting altogether. I think that I'm just going to shift my priorities. For example, when I had uh, Rob on the show from the Red Cup Review, he was talking about the difference between collecting three, uh, four and three, excuse me, three and three quarter inch action figures, six inch action figures, uh, and collecting, say, one six scale action figures by something like Sideshow and Hot Toys uh, or three zero. And uh, they're higher end, they're better quality figures, and something like that that you can really put up and appreciate every single time you see it, as opposed to just being, oh, it's that thing I like. You know, really appreciating the artistry that goes into it and, and the detail. You know, that's kind of cool. It's outside of my budget currently, but the idea of that appeals to me. And, and I'm one of those guys, too, that as a collector, it's so hard for me. It's, it's like a... It's like an obsession, you know, it's it's probably not a healthy thing. And that's why I'm what, what they may refer to in the collecting community as a completionist. I like if there's a set, I want every piece of it. I don't I don't like collecting specific aspects of something like a card set, for example. I want all the parallels. I want all the inserts. I want everything that I can get my hands on that pertains to that set, the short prints, autographs, etc. And that's just it's not possible for me. So I'm constantly in a state of anxiety and I don't think that's very healthy. Um, I would much rather, I think, start putting some of that money that I would spend on those things and the time that I would spend hunting to make this podcast better and to be able to create more material, um, in a higher quality. For example, I would love to do more comic reviews. I have the tag on Instagram, number one Wednesdays. And for the most part, that's my hashtag. There are maybe three people that also use that hashtag or have, I should say, used that hashtag. And I had at one point well over, I would say, a hundred posts using the tag number one Wednesdays. And that would show off my number ones, ones that are already in my possession or ones that I picked up or variant covers or whatever. And uh, it was really fun. I enjoyed it, and I'd like to go back to that. But instead of just posting a picture of my comic, I would like to talk about it. And I think that number one Wednesday would be a really cool way to to keep those posts, but also to create new material for the Sleeping Giant. So that's something that I'd like to do. And I think if I just kind of switch gears a little bit and 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 try to be more productive in a more uh, in a more positive way that is more beneficial to me and to my family uh, i.e stop spending so much money on stuff i think that would probably 
probably be really cool. Now, kind of going back to what I said about fandom, I I am a grown-ass man, as I think is what they say these days. I'm a grown-ass man, but there's still a pressure to fit in. There's a pressure to be accepted in uh, fandom communities, in the podcasting community, and online uh, on the whole. You know, there's this pressure to fit in and to say the right thing and to do the right thing and to not say the thing that's going to get you in trouble, as it were, with the Twitter mob. Earlier in the show, I said some things. I said some things that may upset some people. I said some things that uh, maybe I didn't know exactly what I was talking about in some instances. That's fine. But moving forward, I'm not going to filter my opinions. I'm not going to filter from my show what I think might upset someone. And if I do say something that upsets you, one of two things can happen. You're probably somebody that I don't care about as far as the show is concerned. If if you're a fan or if you listen and I lose you, it probably is something that we're both better off for. But if it's something that upsets you and you want to establish a dialogue with me and you want to talk to me about it and you want to help me understand your position or your point of view, please, I urge you to send me a direct message. I urge you to uh, make a post on the Facebook page or uh, my Instagram account, whatever. Let's talk. You know, let's figure this out. Help me understand if there is something that you feel I've gotten wrong or made a mistake with. But again, moving forward, I don't think that I'm just not going to hold back anymore um, to kind of to lighten the mood a little bit or maybe darken it, depending on your point of view. I'm going to give you one of my hot takes real quick. Okay, are you ready for a Grayson Barker Marcotte Sleeping Giant podcast hot take? Okay, The Last Jedi was almost in every way a superior film to The Rise of Skywalker. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time because I know that probably is a little confusing to some people, maybe, especially if you've listened to anything that I've had to say about uh, Star Wars in the last several films. The Last Jedi was in almost every way a superior film to The Rise of Skywalker. But guess what? I enjoy The Rise of Skywalker far, far more than The Last Jedi. It it's a movie that I will watch again and again, and uh, it's just more Star Wars to me. And I personally love the character choices and the directions that they chose to take Star Wars in The Rise of Skywalker. Was it a better movie than The Last Jedi? No, I don't think so. I think despite the, agree- dis- excuse me, the disagreements that I have with the directions that Ryan Johnson chose to take that movie, some of the... Um, character choices that Ryan Johnson chose to make, don't care for, don't like them, will I will be at odds with them forever. But I think that it was a superior film. So that's one hot take for you. And uh, love it if you sent me a message so that we can chat about that. Um, but that's just the kind of thing you know, that I'm talking about. I, I, I realized that I've been, and, uh, and I think Matt Applegate was the first person to kind of bring this to my attention, that I don't really give my personal feelings and opinions on things. I like to talk about things, but it's not always from my exact point of view. So you're going to get a lot more of that moving forward. And, uh, and I won't, I won't any longer cater to an imaginary or hypothetical audience. I mean, 
there are only a handful of you anyway. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, if, if you've been listening to the show, I think you probably still will. And I think you'll probably like it more. And if not, oh, well, you know, um, I'm still here and I'm still doing my thing. All right, y'all. I teased it a while ago and asked you what you would think of a John Wick episode of the Sleeping Giant podcast. And the feedback I received amounted, in essence, to a resounding yes. So here we are, the first of a multi-part series featuring the John Wick films with the irreplaceable Papa Marcotte, my dad, Mr. Stephen W. Marcotte. The film John Wick was released in October of 2014 and was directed by Chad Stahelski, and it was based off of a screenplay by writer and film producer Derek Kolstad. Now, he didn't produce this particular film, but that is something that he does. Now, who is this John Wick guy, you ask, and why is he so damn mean to all of these Russian mobsters and what the hell is Gunjitsu and just what is the deal with that pencil and that puppy? So let's pop into that conversation with Dad and find out. Dad, are you there? I am. How are you? I'm, I'm very well. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining me again tonight. I certainly appreciate it. You're welcome. How are things going up there in Athens? Wow, it's very rainy today. Hopefully that'll pass soon and um, it'll look like a, a nice weekend. Um, Ann and I are doing a half marathon in Hilton Head this weekend. Nice. Yeah, so we'll be leaving tomorrow for that. So we're looking Have forward to it. Have you guys been training um, regularly? Like, uh, uh, do, you, do you prepare for a half marathon the same way every time? Uh, you're supposed to, but we haven't been as aggressive in our training as we were for a half that we ran in October. So... We're uh, we're just gonna take it easy, enjoy the beach while we're there, yeah. and it's a flat course, which is unusual for us. Mm, that uh, is strange. So uh, we're just looking forward to it. Well, it's all flat down here. Yeah, I really want to do the Disney half marathon. That looks really exciting. Yeah, I've heard it's really really nice. Really nice. Yeah the uh, the only half that I did, as I probably mentioned before, is the one. I guess it was the second half marathon. Yeah, or was that the first? I don't uh, remember. Second, I think. You did well. Yeah. You did well. In yeah, that. I felt like I did pretty well. I ran that with uh, Nick Partridge, and I, you had some ridiculous time. Didn't you finish? You were yeah, one, you were done well before I was. Yeah, yeah, 149 or so. Yeah, but you kept yourself in shape, which is, you know. Well, I, I don't know. I feel like I did pretty well, considering I never ran a race before. I mean, I thought that uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny looking back. I would give almost anything to get back in that kind of shape well, where, you know, um, it was just train, train, train. And if I wanted to drink and smoke, it was just run an extra mile. Yeah, you and, did. Uh, you did well. You did well in that race. Yeah, it was it was pretty exciting. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a little ridiculous down here because it will be 85 degrees during the day and humid as hell. And then. Mm -hmm. Um, it's freezing cold at night. Well, not literally freezing. It actually dropped down to 32 a couple of weeks ago, which is funny because I have to uh, take care of and adjust all of my hoses and tanks and mm -hmm. things like that, which is a real pain in the ass because, you know, that's not 
doesn't ever really happen. Um, but yeah, so Florida sucks is the moral of that story. Um, don't don't move here. It's not it's not a good place to be. It's um, <laughs> so anyway. Uh, what are we? We're talking about John Wick tonight, which is mm-hmm. uh, we've been talking about doing this for a while. Yeah, yeah. I feel like. Um, so, w- did you first see John Wick when it came out in uh, 2014? Uh, no, no, I was really late uh, to come to the first movie. Yeah. Uh, I think I may have seen it on streaming or even on TV and mm-hmm. um, on network TV, and then really liked it and went looking for it and watching the the theatrical version and really enjoyed it for many different reasons and looked forward to the second one and really looked forward to the third. Yeah. So I was first, very late coming to it as well. Yeah. The first one was very exciting, um, especially rewatching it uh, the other day in preparation for this podcast. It was, it, it's still very exciting, a very exciting movie. So how did you hear about it since you were a late comer? Well, I'm always looking for action movies. I, I like action movies. Uh, I'm a fan of Keanu Reeves as well and was a fan of the Matrix movies, maybe one and two, not necessarily three. But uh, again, it, after it had come out, it got a lot of good buzz after the fact. Uh, and so I thought, well, okay, this is worth a, a look. I had time. And I really enjoyed it. It was it was really exciting. Yeah. Uh, setting up this, um, especially the way it begins, you've got this man who's grieving for his wife and gets a puppy, and that's how it begins. And you have no yep. idea where this is going. Now, let me say that I didn't I didn't really think about watching these films that much because I think the second one had already come out by the mm-hmm. time I got it. Like it had been out for a minute. Um, by the time I got around to it, but I remember you mentioning it and I thought, well, you know, if it's something dad likes, I should probably check it out. But when I found out that the premise of the film, or rather I should say the plot unfolds because somebody kills this man's dog. I was like, yeah, well, yeah I gotta, I gotta watch this. Yeah, exactly. That's the, <laughs> because and, that's, that's amazing. And that's the first thing. The, the, the first thing is his wife passes away. And she sends him this dog, Daisy, and the movie unfolds from there. That's the starting off point. All yeah. of the action for that movie and the two subsequent movies all derive from the fact that those Russian mobsters killed his dog, Daisy. Yeah, yep. The car is replaceable. The uh, yeah. The the dog is not, and that's what they they reiter- they reiterate that throughout the film. All mm-hmm. of this for a dog. Yeah, over and, and over. Uh, but we'll, We'll get to that um, in a moment. I just want to mention the director, uh, Chad Stahelski, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar with his work outside of John Wick? No, only um, in, again, doing research for this, that he was Keanu Reeves' stunt double in The Matrix. And yes. that's, that's pretty much all I've got. Well, the, the thing that I found the most interesting is that he had done a lot of stunt work previously. But I, I think the more interesting thing to me is that he was also doing stunt work for The Crow in oh. the early 90s. 
and uh, he was actually Brandon Lee's double after Brandon Lee's untimely passing. God rest mm-hmm. his soul. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, speaking of just really interesting information, he was the double that was wearing the CGI mask of Brandon Lee's face when he first uh, paints his face and uh, shadow smile, as it were, and the lightning flashes, and he's standing in the broken window Ooh. with the raven on his shoulder, or the crow, I should say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so that was actually the director of John Wick that was standing in that window. Um, so I thought that was very interesting, and also there seemed to be a lot of parallels between the crow and John Wick, which uh, I think you know are pretty obvious at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, they're both revenge pictures, um, they both, I guess, focus on someone who is, uh, who, uh, how would you say this? Their sole determination is to, uh, to avenge these, uh, these, these wrongs that were, that were done upon them. Uh, but more, more on that, of course, later. So yeah, the movie, as you said, begins with, uh, with his wife's death and, uh, the gift of the dog Daisy, which I th- I think is a beagle, maybe. Yeah, a beagle um, puppy. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, I don't really like small dogs, but that was a cute puppy. <laughs> it was very much so. But uh, just to sort of paint a picture, I think it's important to understand, and I'm sure that you're probably already aware of this going into the film as the viewer. But it's important to know that John Wick, prior to meeting. Uh, his wife Helen, I think, was mm-hmm. her name. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a bad dude, mm-hmm. um, as mm-hmm. Isaac Hayes might say. He was a bad motherfucker, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I don't really think that morality or romantic feelings had anything to do uh, with John Wick and the business that he was up to. So. As the movie goes on, it's sort of revealed to you that this is the case, but he he's someone who, he, he's an anomaly, I think you could say. Um, people like John Wick don't find themselves in the situation that he was in. And it's a testament to how important his new life was to him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because, or it's a testament to that in that he was required to do something almost impossible or what was deemed impossible to achieve this this life and it's important also to note that the man who said that told his son that john wick was a man of determination and focus so mm-hmm. if he decides that he's going to do something come hell or high water it's going to be done um, so I think that that those things are important to know about the character moving forward. So um, yeah. So what sets this thing off? It's the uh, it's the dog and the Russian. Or I should say it's the uh, it's the Mustang and the Russians that really kind of open this thing up for us. Mm-hmm. They uh, it's uh, Lo- Losef, I think is the uh, mobster's son. Is that correct? I I, I hope you're pronouncing I I could not pronounce it. But yes, I'm, I'm assuming that that's close to it. Well, I I assumed that it was Yosef, but uh-huh. it's uh, just in, in, in reading various web pages, it was always spelled with an L. So um, I heard Yosef, but I uh-huh. think it's Yosef. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, so this guy is played by Alfie Allen, which 
uh, fans of HBO's Game of Thrones will probably recognize as Theon Greyjoy. See, I never. I, I I'm sorry to say, I never watched Game of Thrones. So, don't be sorry. I yeah. mean, it was a great show for a long time, but then uh, it took a shit, and <laughs> um, I don't know what happened. <laughs> but I it was, cost someone Star Wars. I know that much. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I wasn't familiar with him. But he he played that mobster role very well. He did. He did. Now, do you have any any thoughts about him? Uh, initially, or uh, I mean, because to me, he just seemed more or less two dimensional. Uh, yeah, he he was just playing what I would have imagined as a stereotypic stereotypical Russian spoiled Russian mobster kid. Uh, and for example, when he's talking about the car, he says everything has a price, bitch, and and right. he's he's startled when when John Wick responds to him in Russian, but. Uh, the fact that he he didn't even contemplate the consequences of what he was doing uh, just evidence that he was just a spoiled mobster. Indeed. There's a lot that you can take from this movie, I think. It, it, it is multi-layered, and there are many messages. It's not just some action movie, and that's probably why I hadn't seen it for so long, because mm-hmm. I thought maybe it would be, but I think the important message here is uh, there's an old maxim, I think, uh, or it may not be old, but uh, it's be careful whose toes you step on, because you don't know, or they, or the, they may be connected to the ass you're kissing later, but in this case... <laughs> In this case, it's the the mercenary assassin who decides they want to kill you. Yeah, I I think it's very interesting how it unfolds where he takes the car to Aurelio and Aurelio punches him out. And, and, oh, John Leguizamo? Yeah. yeah. And Bigo, Love John Leguizamo. Yeah, and Vigo calls him and uh, just all he says is he stole John Wick's car and, and killed his dog. And Vigo just says, oh. Oh. <laughs> And, and that was it. That was it. That was that was it. And yeah. And, and so you kind of go, okay, this is this is something here a lot more than we've seen so far. Right. And yeah. So um, so th- and that conversation is important because it sets the tone for how serious mm-hmm. this is. I mean, as you were saying, uh, when John Leguizamo punched uh, Losef, you know, he thought that. You know, he he thought that there was going to be immediate retribution for that action, but there wasn't because mm-hmm. he scared him enough. I think um, that he struck him. That that being something that was out of character and just saying, "Look, you know, you screwed up pretty hard." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and hard. you have no, you have no idea. <laughs> and there was no retribution to Aurelio, Aurelio for for that. Exactly. Yeah, I think they uh, uh, there would have been. I mm-hmm. think that Otherwise, that definitely yeah, would have yeah. been something that had happened, but yeah, as as you said, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's you know um, that is all that can be done. So Vigo is the father of Losef, and that was the one that had called um, Aurelio and mm-hmm. the chop shop. Mm-hmm. And what's what I thought was cool about that scene, and, and I don't know if there's anything in the subtext. I don't necessarily think it means anything, but he called him on a landline, which. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you're not used to to hearing that sort of telephone ring these days. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was very interesting. And it just sort of makes me wonder if, you know, that just sort of like represents the, the old school 
values well, we, that these guys have. Yeah, we see um, we see that low tech uh, atmosphere coming to play in the next couple of movies, but uh, Vico calls John Wick on a landline as well mm-hmm. when they're conducting, and you can imagine. I'm assuming they're secure lines. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it was very interesting. <laughs> it's just very interesting. And then the, yeah. the interplay between John Wick and Aurelio later, when he says, is it here? He goes, it was. And just very short sentences, not a lot of discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, I need a ride. And so he gives him a ride. Yep, which was another, was that another Mustang? No, that was a Chevelle. That was, a, that was an old oh, okay. Chevelle, a souped up Chevelle. Gotcha. Late it's 60s. a little, little dark, and I don't know my cars. I'm not necessarily a car guy. Um, yeah, it's a muscle car from the 60s. Yeah, it looked metal as hell. It, yeah, it was. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. Yeah, significantly. So one of the things that I noticed, especially in the chop shop, is... And and this is something I want to talk about before we move forward, just so you can kind of get an idea listening. I'm sure a lot of folks have, have seen John Wick, but if not, it it has that, the film has that quality visually that usually to me is a detriment in a lot of movies these days where it's sort of that sickly, washed out green, that teal. Uh, uh-huh. The, yeah. Um, very, very blue. <laughs> And I don't normally like that. It seems to be very popular these days. But in this particular movie, I think that it works. Because as we move along throughout the film, it is intercut with uh, John's memories of his wife. And those scenes stand out in a very stark contrast because they're all very warm Mm -hmm. and a little bit more saturated. Yeah. So, uh, And again, uh, I mean, it's a great visual storytelling method but it stood out to me the most because it reminded me of the crow Mm -hmm. um the alex proyas film was you know it's in detroit it's it's uh devil's night halloween and everything is is washed out i mean it's almost black and white um i mean it was made to resemble the comic which was in Mm -hmm. black and white Mm -hmm. but everything is very desaturated and then eric's memories are in color and super saturated um, so I thought that that was a very cool thing to do. Uh, it may not be a direct throwback to the crow, of course, because it is a, a storytelling uh, technique. Yeah, cinematography is is um, not talked about as much as it, it really should be. The mm-hmm. the DP, the director of photography, has so much influence on setting a scene and a mood and. Again, this was done exactly as you described with um, a very dark undertone. And, of course, when he's thinking of Helen, his it's brighter and um, he's reliving that bright memory. Exactly. Um, so we're kind of we're kind of still in that moment where Vigo gives the, the phone call to uh, to Aurelio John Leguizamo. And then uh, John comes back. I think (laughs) I kind of want to go back a little bit because after that call, you've got the conversation between Vigo and his son. 
And he just, you know, he keep Vigo keeps himself very composed, but he just slugs mm-hmm. the boy, you know, um, takes his jacket off. And the, the character in the background, I don't remember his name, uh, but he, he played a, a character named Ryan O'Reilly in uh, HBO's Oz, which yeah. was a, a really good program. It's Abby. The character's name is Abby. Abby? It's Dean Winters, the uh, Mayhem guy from the Allstate commercial. Yes, yes. I'm so glad that O'Reilly's still getting work. That <laughs> that does actually make me very happy. Um, so he's there and he's holding Vigo's jacket and uh, he gives him the what for. Now, I thought that was interesting because I think Vigo knows deep down that these are his last moments with his son. Mm-hmm. Um, so why why would you hit him? <laughs> Is that just their way? <laughs> well, I think it's their way, but it, it's also um, it. He knows, as you described, what is going to happen, mm-hmm. and and he has to. Vigo has to take steps to protect his son. But as you had mentioned earlier, John is a man of determination, and his son by that action, not only put his life in danger, but put Vigo's life in danger. Right. The whole operation. The whole operation. And yeah. we see that Through later. a silly mistake. Yeah, yeah. Well, not that I was silly. Uh, I don't want to trivialize that. But to him, it was just some... It was a Tuesday, as they say, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right about that. Um so maybe that was that was the motivation behind that. Um, but one of the reasons I wanted to mention that is because it it's in this scene I think that Vigo tells his son uh, he he sort of gives him an anecdote involving John where he says mm-hmm. I once saw him three kill men with a pencil, mm-hmm. <laughs> which uh, which again was one of the things that drew me to this movie because I was looking at the uh, sideshow Hot Toys John Wick. That came with a puppy, but it also came with a, a pencil, and I thought that was an odd accessory. <laughs> and then I started thinking, "Oh, this this has to be what I think it is." And yeah, it was. Well, so. well, you also alluded to what Vigo said was that he was in the Wick was in the business, wanted to get out. I gave him an impossible task, and he did it. And our organization is buried atop those bodies. Right. So they are actually pretty intrinsically linked Mm -hmm. to John Wick, Mm -hmm. apart from the fact that he's just somebody you don't want to mess with. Mm -hmm. Wow. So he really screwed up. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, he, I'm assuming, decides that he's got to do whatever he can. He knows it's a losing battle, but, you know, he's not going to go down without a fight. Um. So I'm assuming that it's Vigo who sends a, a bunch of, Hitmen, uh, low rent hitmen. By mm-hmm. the look of it, well, mm-hmm. compared to John Wick, mm-hmm. uh, to John's house, and uh, and uh, do you want to describe this scene for us? Take us through it. Well, um, John is anticipating that this is going to happen, and I think it's twelve guys come in, and John exterminates all twelve of them, and in a technique that we've seen a lot of movies since, but was pretty new at the time, which. The filmmakers describe it as gun jitsu, which is a combination of uh, judo, jujitsu, and he breaks the necks of one, <laughs> breaks the neck of one, shoots the bulk of them. The last one, he um, sticks a knife through his heart. It's just so brutal. 
And he does it just in the most dispassionate way. It's all business. All business, and that's it. And we see a little bit of the organization that we get to see more of in subsequent movies. The, Mm -hmm. The policeman comes to the door and he says, Hi, Jimmy. Hi, John. You working again? Just trying to sort out, sorting out a few yeah. things. And then calling for dinner reservations for 12. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, and that, the cleaner is David Patrick Kelly, by the way. Oh. Um, I don't know if you remember him. He was, um, he was the brother of, oh gosh, and his name is escaping me now, um, in Twin Peaks. Oh. Um, the no. father, the, the, what was his name? I'm, Oh gosh, I can't remember. Wow, all that's just left my brain. Um, but yeah, he was the the brother of the hotel owner, um, and he was also in the Crow. He was one of the uh, he was T Bird, the leader of the gang. Mm. Um, but very interesting guy, that actor. Well, we skipped over John taking a sledgehammer to his basement and pulling out his weapons and the gold coins and his suit mm-hmm. and getting ready for business again. Yeah, like going back to work going back to <laughs> or work. sorting sorting, sorting things some things out. out. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so one of the things that uh, that I had meant to say uh, towards the beginning, but I, I think now is a good time to to put it in. These hitmen are hired; they're sent to John's house. But more importantly, there is another contract killer that Vigo contacts, and that is, I believe, Marcus is his name. Mm-hmm. Played by Willem Dafoe, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. is established early on in the film because he's at Helen's funeral and he says that he's there just to check up on John and see how he's doing. That it's been a while, and you mm-hmm. get the sense that they are old friends and and possibly colleagues, or should I say, colleagues, possibly friends. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so Vigo, of course, um, seeks him out and uh, puts a. A contract on John, which is open, not exclusive, mm-hmm. to Marcus. Um, so he want he wants the job done right, and uh, and in so doing, he he sends Marcus, who says that he can consider it done. So in 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 the context of killers being sent after John, that's where we stand. Yes, yes, and and again, I I'm I'm really unsure if the Marcus character was necessary, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I had a similar thought. How much to the story he adds. If you exclude those scenes and go around it a little bit, does it really detract from the storytelling? No, it doesn't. Um, and the reason that I first began to wonder if he was or let me take that back i did wonder if he was remotely necessary to the storytelling however when you jump forward in the movie and vigo has john tied up in the chair um that that would have just been totally uh deus ex however the inclusion of marcus makes it far more reasonable and believable for john to get out of that situation Mm -hmm. um so I think that it's a clever way to avoid um, the simplicity or the cheapness of a Deus Ex by 
just giving Marcus by establishing him in a believable but meaningful way and then not really having him do much else Mm -hmm. in the movie. So I don't know if the entire character was built around rescuing John, but it made it far more feasible. Yeah, I, I, I can see that as a, as a, um, a method to continue the story along, but I, I'm sure you could have written a different. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It seems like a lot of work just mm-hmm. for that. And, and but William I, I Defoe, think you're right. William Defoe is a tremendous actor, and his scenes, especially at the end, are played extremely well. But uh, again, is it necessary? Did it take away from the the continuity of the storytelling? Right. Um, I don't know, but it's there, and we um, we just get to enjoy William Defoe. Yeah, I'm not sorry. Willem Defoe is a tremendous actor. I, mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. I love Willem Defoe um, and and everything I've seen him in. Uh, big fan of Boondock Saints. I know mm-hmm. that's kind of got a, a cult following, and not everyone approves of uh, of David Bowie FBI. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I love Willem Dafoe. I just saw The Lighthouse, which was crazy. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. um, I don't know if you had seen The Witch. That was Robert Eggers. That was his first movie. I did not. And then, I did not. oh man, it's it's intense. He brings an incredible intensity to to filmmaking. Um, the Lighthouse. I'll be honest with you. It it was a little pretentious from my liking mm-hmm. maybe i'm just dense and i don't understand it i mean i felt like i followed it fairly well but uh i mean as as a piece of cinema it's amazing i just didn't necessarily care, care for the story but the witch uh I, I don't know if you've if you fancy horror the same way that i do but it uh i would i would give it a watch um it's it's different very uncomfortable <laughs> but uh speaking of uh Speaking of those things, um, so John is back. He he is suited up, and he is driving to the Continental now. Um, and we have Marilyn Manson on the soundtrack, which is the first time I think we hear lyrics or vocals um, in any of the music in the film, which uh, which I thought was interesting. I'm always surprised when I hear Manson and and uh, mainstream productions. So yeah, the Continental is extremely cool. Extremely cool place. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how so. would you describe that? Well, it's an old-fashioned, old not quite Art Deco, but uh, a throwback to the gilded age of hotels, similar to the Waldorf, um, the old, old-time old Waldorf Astoria in New York. Um, not a lot of modern features. Uh, the elevator is a, a gated elevator, which is an old-fashioned style. Um, the style is just reminiscent of a, of another time long past. And that's somewhat what we're, I'm assuming we're supposed to uh, derive from the way it looks and the way it's presented. Uh, it's just a, a, a grand hotel, um, fine china, fine crystal. It, it's just first rate all the way. And I, I kind of get the feeling that these people are sort of from another time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in the way that they conduct themselves. It was uh, more regal, mm-hmm. I think, and um, it took itself seriously. Mm-hmm. 
I think is what I mean to say. Yeah, regal is a, is a good word. The way that uh, everyone addresses each other is is just very, very precise. Uh, Sharon greets John just with the utmost respect. And John likewise treats Sharon with the utmost respect. And the words, there's not a lot of, of words, not a... Uh, not a lot of wasted language in the conversations. Right. No small talk. No small talk. It's just hi, how many nights. Uh, it's um, it, it just adds to the flavor of the environment that is being presented. Right. As we it go builds through. the world. Yeah, builds the world. World building. Yeah, exactly. And it's so it's at the Continental, also in the lounge, which was super cool. I love that mm-hmm. lounge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there we meet. Uh, I believe is the the manager, uh, Winston. He is referred to as the manager. Yes, and that is of course played by uh, the illustrious gentleman actor Ian McShane, mm-hmm. for whom I hold a deep love and respect. Yeah, he's great. He yeah, really Ian good. McShane. My the first time I I saw Ian McShane was probably as Judas, um, way back when, but uh, that's that's been a minute. Um, I didn't become, I guess, uh, how how should I say? I didn't become fully aware of him until his portrayal uh, of. Al Swearingen in HBO's Deadwood. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> which, which to me, that character, uh, not really being familiar with Ian McShane and then seeing um, that character of Swearingen and then seeing the person Ian McShane and, and watching him and listening to him talk, I was just blown away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not, you know, I mean, and of course, you know, that's what they do. They are actors, but it was such a stark difference to me. Uh, very amazed. So, so he is the manager. We 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 get a sense of uh, how I'm I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. How would you describe Winston? Oh goodness, I'm very much self-assured, in complete control, and the master of all he sees. But he seems so relaxed he, and nonchalant. Yes, yes. Very much so. But well, one but, of the things... I'm sorry, go well, ahead. Well, he's just been doing this for a long time. Uh, but he, he he has a soft spot, soft spot for John, as you can tell. Right. Why do you think that is? Just respect how... The, the business I'm sure that they're in is a very difficult business to be successful for many years. And John was successful. He believed in something. He got out. And that's all something that everyone thought of him, John, with high regard. Mm -hmm. That's something that separates John from everybody else. And that respect in combination, which obviously was very good at what he did before he got out, um, is puts him, uh, elevates him to a higher level and commands Winston's respect more so than anybody else. 
Which I'm guessing is why he gave the go-ahead, or rather had the message sent to him that Osef would be hiding at the Red Circle Red Club. Red Circle, yes. Uh-huh. Which I thought was interesting, um, because, you know, like, why, <laughs> when I saw it, I was like, well, that's a bullseye, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so I don't know if if that was the intent behind that, but I just found it kind of ironic that he would be hiding in a place called the Red Circle. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something there that that is, you know, that I'm missing, but, so that place was pretty cool. I don't know if it's someplace I would want to hang out now, but in, in, in my younger days, <laughs> um, <laughs> That that might have been pretty funky. Yeah, um, looked, I don't think <laughs> looked great, didn't it? Yeah, I don't think that uh, I don't think I was the right demographic though. No, you have to like EDM. I don't know if you like EDM. To... Oh, a lot more now than I did. I've, I've since gotten well. I mean, I've always loved you know industrial in the way of like Nine Inch Nails and KMFDM, and that kind of brought me a little bit closer to that and then of course when the matrix came out like all bets were mm-hmm. off so I, I don't know if edm would be the right way to describe some of those things but like uh apex twin are you familiar with apex twin I, i'm not i want to say yeah. that i thought that you had mentioned apex twin to me at one point and i was like what the hell <laughs> <laughs> no no i'm sorry i'm not uh, familiar with that i know you liked radiohead's kid a if i'm remembering correctly i mean there's a pretty big drop off between kid a and something from apex twin but um so this this whole scene is pretty wild yeah absolutely they're in this club and losef is i guess he's hiding there but he's being uh one of the bodyguards refers to his job as babysitting him Um, he's in this, like the part of the club that he's in is just ridiculous. You know, um, like all the, the waiters are these scantily clad women and they're in pools. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, with the lights coming underneath and yeah, like I said, I was totally the wrong demographic, but <laughs> that notwithstanding, um, you get more of an idea of what, a uh, sort of petulant child um losef is mm-hmm. and he still has no grasp mm-hmm. of of the situation oh yeah yeah he thinks that john um, um, is uh someone that can be easily dealt with he's just one man yeah mm-hmm. after all mm-hmm. um so that is where uh john goes to find him now the scene where john shows up at the red circle is interesting to me for a number of reasons but being is that I was watching this, this is the second time I'd seen it, and it was for the show. I'm watching a little bit more carefully, and I see immediately that the the bouncer is Kevin Nash. I don't remember the character's name. It was something unusual. It's escaping me, but uh, it's Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash was a, a bodybuilder and professional wrestler. Um, I think he was, uh, now his professional wrestling names are escaping me. Um, that's too bad. But uh, one one interesting thing about Kevin Nash is that he was the super shredder in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles oh, really? 2, The Secret of the Use. Yeah, he was he was the guy in the costume. So, and that's one of the weird things about John Wick is that there there are all of these actors, and some of them have hardly any screen time, but they're all prominent mm-hmm. or were very prominent at one point. Um, in, in different programs or different professions, which I think is really, really cool. Um, but 
one of the other things about this scene is that um, he uh, says he looks like he's lost a little weight. Mm -hmm. And then he says something like 60 kilograms. And this was just something that I read offhand. Where apparently it would be very difficult for someone to lose sixty kilograms. Sixty pounds, and then it's it? thirty kilograms, thirty or twenty-five kilograms. Yeah. Again, this was just sort of um, an offhand thing that I had read. Uh, was that he was actually telling John uh, how many people were inside? Oh, really? Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it was neat that John told him he should take the night off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he said, "Thank you, Mister Wick." Yeah, so again, you get the impression that he's he has these professional relationships with certain individuals for whatever reason, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which I, I think is incredibly cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, so it, it, it's the respect that I like, uh, the respect that that they have for one another, and uh, and the way that they choose to show it to one another, as as you had. Uh, mentioned before and um so uh you know what it just it, diesel i think was his yeah. performing name mm-hmm. um in uh, professional wrestling but anyway so that was a cool scene it was cool to see uh kevin nash who still looks incredibly good to to be a little on the older side these days <laughs> yeah so <laughs> we all get older yeah yeah well you know it's it reminds me uh bobcat goldthwaite did this uh he had a special a number of years ago now even and i don't remember the title but it was like yeah you don't look the same either or something (laughs) like that (laughs) which i thought was an incredibly uh clever title um okay so we're back at the red circle and i don't even know how to describe this other than just uh chaotic and oh my gosh yes very hard to follow Mm -hmm. i mean it's just mayhem john has taken these guys out in the pool he he's trying to shoot losef uh who very in in an extremely cowardly act grabs one of the girls Mm -hmm. and tries to use her as a shield which is just despicable yeah um but he, of course, gets away and just runs through the main dance floor. Meanwhile, all the lights are going, the uh, the lasers, um, the the like the the spiral effects, and uh, the music just doesn't stop. And it's almost as if nobody really noticed what was going on. <laughs> I mean, except the except the guys that that were supposed to know what was going on. Right, and and that was the crazy part about this scene is is they're doing this uh, and what was it gunjitsu? Did you yeah, call it? Yeah, gunjitsu. Um, you know, through this this dance hall, and these people are just dancing, oblivious um, to these people being murdered, literally right next to them. <laughs> um, which uh, I mean, crazy, huh? <laughs> yeah, I've been in some some similar situations, but I think I would have noticed gunfire yeah um (laughs) and blood yeah anyway so it's just this this outrageous scene of john pursuing him through this club and uh he's i think that he's wounded or he actually gets tagged well he gets stabbed with a champagne bottle oh gosh yeah because he's got a a vest on and Mm -hmm. um a guy breaks i forget the character's name breaks a bottle and stabs him with it Mm-hmm. And and it's just below the vest, Oof, and yeah. and so they're fighting, and he gets thrown over the 
the balcony and he's able to get a couple of shots off and, and he escapes. Yeah, he takes some some fairly serious lumps. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so uh, we at this point we find out too that the Continental has a doctor. A doctor, but he, but yeah, but before that he asks uh, uh, Sharon, "Does how is the laundry?" He says, uh, "No yeah. laundry is that good, Mister Lee." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you're right; they have um, a doctor. 24-7. And uh, John, I think he declines the pain medication. He just wants to get sewn up mm-hmm. and uh, receive the most practical, I think, patching up, an efficient patching up mm-hmm. that he can manage. Um, he does take a big old slug of what I can only imagine is delicious bourbon. Yep. I'm a big fan of bourbon. So, yep, that's a, that's a good <laughs> way to uh, yeah. take care of pain. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I'm no doctor, but um, <laughs> this is what happens. Yosef escaped him at the Red Circle, which totally sucks. But mm-hmm. he's, I mean, we're slowly slimming down Vigo's uh, army, as it were. Um, so in what I thought was just an, uh, an act of pretty brazen boldness, John decides that that uh, what he's going to do is go after Vigo's nest egg. Well, rem- um, remember that uh, Perkins, the assassin, was offered double the bounty if yeah. she took care of him in the Continental. Yeah, so Perkins is, uh, she's a mercenary assassin, much in the same vein as John Wick. You assume that they're all in a similar business. Mm-hmm. Um I, I, I get the feeling that not everyone does exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could be totally wrong about that. But yeah, so she's she's a, a contract killer like Marcus, like John. And uh, so she takes a crack at him. Now, the important thing about this, and you may have to explain this because I missed some of it and, and I didn't go back. What are the rules no, of the continent? No business to be, be conducted on continental property and business being murder or yes yes or scuffles yeah. i mean what what counts as business any, anything that is of a violent nature toward any member okay so well that definitely comes into play uh in the future of john wick and the sequels mm-hmm. um but right now i guess what's happening is perkins decided that the money was worth the risk mm-hmm. because it's only you're only breaking the rules if you get caught. Yeah, I'm assuming. yeah. Um, and the Continental doesn't seem like it's the kind of place that has cameras at every single corner <laughs> yeah. because I I assume that they assume that their members are going to conduct themselves professionally. Yes. So there would be no need for that ki- that type of surveillance. Mm-hmm. Again. That's just my observation. Well, and they, they don't want any record either because, again, ah, yeah. they're very low-tech as well as we see uh, in subsequent movies, but they, they don't want any record of anything. Right. That's correct. So he, he is able to subdue Perkins, and he uh, offers one of the other residents. Gosh, was it Clark Peters? Oh, he, I forget, yeah. He... Uh, he he is there. He checks on John. And again, they have a similar exchange. It's, hey, John. <laughs> yeah. You know, we'll see you later, John. Uh, but he offers him a gold coin for a catch and release, uh, which is babysitting Perkins 
um, until he can get back. And of course, we find out that that doesn't work out very no, well for Clark Peters. Right. And let me just say that that pissed me off. Yeah, because yeah. He, he was doing John a good turn, and and then that went down the way that it did. She uh, she dislocates her thumbs, escapes the handcuffs, and uh, puts a pillow over his face and, and shoots him, which sucks. But he did pull the classic rookie maneuver of leaning in to condescend to someone. Yeah. Um, which at this point, as the viewer, you know, is never a good point. <laughs> well, re- re- yeah. remember also, real quick before we skip away from the Continental, that Marcus fires a warning shot on John's pillow to alert him that mm. that Perkins yes. is coming in. Yes. And uh, he... I want to. I can't remember. He takes another shot, doesn't he? I think so. Trying to get Perkins. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't remember the context of that. Um, but yes, so so he knows that his. And I, I guess here's another thing about Marcus is these situations. Is it sort of allowing John the knowledge that he's being watched after? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because that, if if that's the case, then that kind of gives John an advantage where he knows that he's never really that close to mortal danger if he's got Marcus mm-hmm. watching his back, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of takes us, uh, you know, back to that that later scene of him in the chair, which is actually coming up fairly yep. soon. Yeah. So the church scene that we started talking about that is where that is where Vigo keeps all of his all of his business. What what did he say? They were uh, ex- records of extortion, blackmail, mm-hmm. uh, leverage on the city, mm-hmm. and leverage on his uh, associates and probably enemies, probably mm-hmm. both. Um, but I get the impression too that John is personally knowledgeable of many of those things. Oh, he knew where to go. He knew right where to go. Yeah, because that was probably very well connected to those impossible tasks. Sure. Yeah, he knew that, right uh, where to go. Yeah, so, which I, I thought was funny because you have one of the Russian mobsters there uh, that's dressed like a priest, I guess. Well, he's a, and, he's uh, a priest. Oh, he is a priest. That's why, yeah, he he's a, a Russian Orthodox priest. But the churchgoers, they're mobsters. Oh, right, right. I couldn't remember if it was all a facade or uh, or what the deal was. But he seemed like, the, the priest himself, if I remember, he seemed like he had some uh, some tats going up his Oh, yeah, he's not... Up his he wasn't and, innocent, of course. But he asks, do you, do you know what you're doing? Do you know who this belongs to? Yeah. And John's just like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you yeah. don't want to do that. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so he knows that this, you know, it's it's completely for keeps after this and he knows that he's going to have to take everybody down mm-hmm. uh, and not just Losef after that but but that's the point is that he, he doesn't care you know and I, I think that that's what's interesting is that he, he is willing to because if, if, if he could have just killed Losef that would have probably been the end of it mm-hmm. but then you have this I don't know you have this strange sort of dichotomy where if he would have killed Losef, I think Vigo would have been honor bound to continue pursuing him. And it do, I don't think it really matters which way you cut it. I think that I think all the way from the beginning, you know that either John dies or everyone dies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that it's actually at this point too that John realizes whether he admitted it to himself or not. I think that's when he says, "Okay, yeah, that's what this is about," and. 
And I think that's what motivates him or gives him the okay to do that. So he probably knew it in his gut and his soul. That's how it was going to be. But um, I think that was that action was the conscious choice to uh, to bring it to bring it all out and bring that to the forefront. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, I'm a little hazy. What happens at this point? I know that Marcus is on the rooftop watching. Yeah. That. So what so what happens is that um, so they have a battle outside the church and. The, the guy that fought with John at the Red Circle hits John with a car and knocks him out. Oh, yeah. And so he's tied up in the chair, and Vigo is doing a little monologue and leaves him uh, to be taken care of. They hop in the Suburbans. Uh, Marcus uh, shoots one guy. John's able to escape, and John runs and confronts the Suburban with this wild shotgun and causes the Suburbans uh, to crash. And so he's got Vigo and basically says, look, tell me where he is, call off the contract, and, and we're done. And he does give him up. He does give his son up, yeah. And so that, then that leads us to the scene where Vigo is, is smoking the joint, just waiting for the call that his son is killed. Right. And John dispatches all the guys at that, that factory setting or wherever they were. And uh, I think what's interesting is there's no monologuing from John, not at all. Mm-hmm. He just, no. boom, he's done. Yes. And I, I did make note of that. I thought that was very interesting that that was like, he didn't, as you said, there was no monologue and it was very unceremonious. Mm-hmm. Like there was no, there was no, uh, you know, long shot down the barrel. There was, you know, no kind of moment for Losef. It was just, like you said, boom, he's dead, and that's done. Yeah, and I'm, I was thinking when I was watching it the first time that there would be, uh, it, would, it would call for some uh, ceremony, as you said, but no, it, it's much better this way. <laughs> You're done. Yeah. He, yeah. He doesn't owe that guy anything more than a bullet. No, he, and in fact, it's very reminiscent of how they killed his dog. Yeah. Like it was just boom, that's, that's it, you know? Um, so let's, I want to go back to, to Vigo smoking that joint. Mm-hmm. Um, because when he is, he's not wearing his jacket. He's got his, his sleeves rolled up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> his hair is a little disheveled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I guess that it's at this point where he's just like, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much dead. I'm a dead yeah, man. My yeah. son is dead. I'm a dead man. Um, let's just, let's unwind. This is the last time I'm going to get to do this. Um, which again is just so interesting to me because he doesn't give up. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> you think that you just be like, all right, that's it. But he doesn't. He he goes all the way to the end, which I, to be frank, I don't understand. I mean, it gives us a, a movie, sure. But um I don't know if that would have been me. Hmm. So uh, where where are we well, John, at this point? John checks out of the Continental. He's given the car because of the unfortunate circumstances that had transpired the previous night. Right. And intercut with that, of course, is uh, Vigo going to Marcus's house and saying you called off the contract, Marcus saying you called off the contract, but you had an ample opportunity. And Marcus basically going out on his own terms by trying to take out um, the couple of thugs, but 
Mm-hmm. Marcus is dispatched. Um, John gets a, goes to there, and and that pretty much seals it for John that he's got to take care of Vigo. Well, there is a scene I think that happens maybe right after uh, the 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 killing of Marcus. Uh, I think Perkins is uh, she may be. Pre- I think she's present when Marcus is killed. <laughs> she is, yes. Um, uh huh. But she also has a sort of uh, a moment, as it were. Um, and again, I don't recall if this happens before. I, I would assume it happens before the showdown with Vigo. It, it does, yeah. But uh-huh. uh, she uh, she meets Winston, mm-hmm. and uh, he basically tells her, "You you done goofed." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that her membership of at the Continental would be revoked forthwith. Yeah. And uh, and she's killed by like five or six people yeah, standing yeah, around. They yeah. all shoot her at the same time, and that's it. Yeah. So don't yeah. don't break the continental rules. Nope. It's a swank place. Yeah, like, yeah. why would you want to give that up anyway? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I mean, even if you're not working, it seems like it would be uh, be pretty cool to chill there. Yeah, absolutely. That's that pretty much brings us to the end. There there are a couple of more vehicle chases um, as as Vigo's helicopter is uh being fueled and prepared for takeoff so they're who's left is it uh avi you said avi yeah and uh-huh. ryan o'reilly yeah he's uh-huh. he's with vigo as they're being pursued by john and he's just flipping out uh-huh. yeah. because he's unarmed and uh he, and he wants a gun so that he can defend himself <laughs> which which is just too bad yeah. <laughs> you know and vigo of course is just sort of toying with him uh, by offering him a gun, and uh, so you know that's not going to work. Yeah, out well. he, he knows that they're <laughs> they're just they're all so terribly screwed. Yeah. Um. So Vigo and John face off with guns briefly until they decide, or until Vigo decides. I think it, it, this is the point. I think where he does just give up. Um. He, he he stops trying to get away. He stops trying to run. He knows that. He's he's gonna die, but maybe there's a chance. Just maybe, because John's gonna chase him wherever he goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe if he faces him face, you know, or, or um, challenges him face to face, that you know that chance is better than nothing. So I thought that was interesting that he that he felt like he could take John on mm-hmm. hand to hand, and he did. And he did. He did a great job uh, until the yep. very end. <laughs> Yes. So, you know, of course he pulls out a knife. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, offering to fight him fisticuffs and then he pulls out a blade. Um and, and honestly, to me there's nothing very special about this fight. Um it's just it, in fact, it's probably the least impressive mm-hmm. uh in the film. However, there is one thing that happens and it speaks to John's determination that I thought was brutal because I didn't even notice it the first time I watched it when they're grappling and Vigo has the knife, he allows himself to be stabbed yeah. mm-hmm. because he calculated his, he calc- it was a calculated move. He knew that if his arm went in further, which of course would mean being penetrated with the blade, he would then be able to break it, disarm Vigo and end the fight. He, yeah. He gained control of the situation. Which you know that's that's hardcore. That is hardcore. <laughs> yeah. You know, 
Uh, and that's that's the end of the movie. Yeah. I well, mean, he... What, well, not the, the, the very end. Yeah, the one thing we failed to mention is the movie opens with that suburban running into that, that right. wall. Right. And John looking at, which is a, a recording of Helen, and then mm-hmm. that's where we are. We've, we've gone for full circle. Right. And he's uh, he's actually outside of a vet yeah, i want to say clinic. yeah uh-huh. yep yeah he he just goes right inside makes himself at home grabs their staple gun yeah that was and, that was uh, hardcore <laughs> stapling up his wound yep. yeah but yeah. most importantly out of everything that we discussed i think most importantly he sees that there's a dog uh-huh. there uh and he he gets him as george carlin would say he got himself a new damn dog yeah um and uh, and they just they leave. And, then, and the dog never has a name. No, never no, has a name because the dog is in in the next film. Yeah, dog doesn't have a name, which I could totally get into. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what are we what what are we doing? So that the folks listening, they we're we're doing this movie. We're doing John Wick, but our plan is to do John Wick two and three. Mm-hmm simultaneously so that's going to be one show we're going to cover both of those movies mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you think about that is that still a good plan sure sure because i think they, it might be they flow they those yeah. two do they they are in essence a four-hour movie because right, they do flow right. one right after another and that's one of the crazy things about this movie and i didn't realize it until i watched the third one that this all takes place yeah right. within a span of about two weeks mm-hmm somewhere yeah. in that neighborhood yeah. um but yeah just just a tremendous film i mean the the dialogue that is present clipped though it is is just fantastic mm-hmm. um you know it's uh it, it's so elegant um again speaking of the cinematography it is just beautiful it helps tell the story you you clearly see that the cinematography in this film tells the story just as much as any of the action mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Um, or dialogue, yep. so incredibly cool. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any any final thoughts about this film? Well, when I was watching this this, this time, I, there there's always a question of where do you go with this. And the director was asked after the last movie, and his response was, "Where do you think this is going to go? It's not going to end well for John, right?" Uh, what where can this guy go? What can he do? He cannot redeem himself again. So I had an idea. Of course, I'm not a filmmaker, but after watching this movie, uh, I felt it, it really sets up a prequel. Where wouldn't it be great to see John in the business, and what was it that he did for Vigo? Now, unfortunately, the actor is has passed away. So. Uh, Vigo, the actor, uh, uh, has passed away, Michael Novquist. Uh, But just the opportunity to see John get into this business, we've already been introduced, and we're really into uh, this group. Um, Mm -hmm. And so wouldn't it be great to see a little more of it, now that we know a lot about it, to see the prequel, how John met Helen, fell in love, and what it took for John to do yes. to get out of the business. And I think that would be a great film. And it, it would be action-packed. It would have the same elements 
uh, but it would just have a different ending. And if you ended the John Wick series, in essence, with a prequel, I, I think people uh-huh. would be happy. You know, you you might not be far off the mark with that. I saw that John Wick 4 is in production, mm-hmm. um, but there is a film called The Ballerina, uh, uh-huh. which is coming out, and I'm assuming that focuses on his involvement with the... Uh, the um, Angelica Houston character. Angelica yeah. Houston, yeah, her her character. Uh-huh. Now it could be totally wrong. It could just be about her and her organization or whatever it was she was doing. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm thinking perhaps it could. Um, I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I tell you, I have not yet read the IDW mm-hmm. comics mm-hmm. Um, that came out in 2017. But I'll bet that um, I'll bet that we get to see some of those things. So I, I'm actually planning on ordering those very soon because I really want to read them. Uh, and, you know, you were talking about um, about Vigo. The, you know, I knew I had seen him. That actor was, he was the, um, rep- I think he was a reporter in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, oh, the, uh-huh. the Swedish version. Uh-huh. That And that, that I saw that one before I saw the David Fincher remake. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the guy. Huh. Um, yeah, he's Swedish, I guess. I would assume. Yeah, with a name like Nervquist. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I definitely had seen that actor before. Um, his, he's got a very, very piercing gaze. Mm-hmm. I think he's got, and I remember that specifically from the girl with the dragon tattoo. Uh, now, before we wrap this up, I, I just wanted to mention. Uh, something I, I noticed, which has led me to uh, something else, of course, I'm going to need to look into more extensively. Um, in the early part of the film, when the dog is still alive, John has a a, a therapy wherein he goes to a, a lot that a guard allows him into, and he drives. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so uh-huh. he sort of he sort of uh, rage drives. And, uh, which is, which is pretty cool. I can dig that. Uh-huh. Um, but the, uh, I noticed as I was watching that the guard was reading a book. Mm-hmm. And so I, I freeze framed on that book and it is, it's a novel called Shibumi. Um, are you familiar with I'm that? I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not either prior to having seen this film, but I paused it. I, I saw that the title was Shibumi. And it focuses on uh, a character named Nikolai Hell, and he's like a an assassin. Like he's probably like the most deadly assassin to have ever lived. I'm not familiar with the plot. I haven't read the book, but uh, I was skimming through some of it, and uh, I saw that that he is a master of what's called the naked kill, Ooh. where basically you anything and everything is a deadly weapon around you. Um, so that way you don't, yeah, I'm assuming you, you don't have to f- worry or fret about being armed because everything, <laughs> everything is deadly uh-huh. around you. So I thought that was kind of cool and I'd be interested to see, uh, what that book is all about and maybe give it a read to see what sort of parallels, um, there are between that and John Wick. Well, I'm sure there's some. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm I'm wondering also if if that was uh, if that served as an inspiration for for the character and and some of those circumstances, but uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's uh, the the name of the book is Shibumi. The author is Trevanian, which I think is a, a pen name 
yeah, but uh, but I think that's it. I think that wraps up our uh, our John Wick talk. Okay. Um, I thought it was great. Yep. I I thought it was great, and I I love the other two movies. I can't wait to talk about them, and um, because they're they're each very different in their own way, and yet they don't really break the rules or the continuity mm-hmm. of of what we've seen and what we've learned. So really looking forward to that. Yep. Um, and let's see, uh, there are a couple more, I think I want to do this year. Uh, if you would be down, we really need to get a, that Ghostbusters episode. <laughs> <laughs> really need to do that. We really need to do Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're interested in, in talking about those, I'm, I'm certainly game. You bet. So this, uh, I guess that kind of will clue, clue all of you into, uh, what we'll be doing on the show in the future, but I'll go ahead and put it out there. Uh, my brother Will and I are watching a little film called UHF, <laughs> and uh, <Weird> <laughs> I don't know if you remember that yeah. one, Dad. Yep, Weird Al Yankovic, his motion picture. Uh, <laughs> I can't, I can't even think about it without cracking up because I love that movie. It's so funny to me. Um, you know, with films like Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice, UHF is one of those. That uh, it didn't really shape me as a child, but it sort of influenced my interests and sense of humor as a uh, as a young man. <laughs> I felt like it was a film that was uh, that was made for me. But uh, yeah, so UHF, that's a good one. And uh, so those are a few of the things that'll be happening. I think uh, I think UHF will probably be next month, and I think I'd like to come back in April with uh with john wick okay. two and three okay all right well dad you have yourself a good night thanks, thanks again you bet yeah absolutely um and good luck this week oh thanks thanks yep all right dad i'll talk to you soon that's another one in the bag y'all I can't believe February is done and dusted in terms of both the calendar year and this podcast show. Thanks again to my dad, Mr. Stephen Marcotte, for making another appearance on the show and gabbing about John Wick with me. Dad will be back quite soon to join me for John Wick 2 and John Wick 3 Parabellum, and that show or shows, depending will likely be in March or April, and that will be based, of course, on everyone's availability and schedule. In that same time frame, though, I will be recording an episode with my brother, William, about that wacky 1989 film starring Weird Al Yankovic, UHF. I'm almost positive that my brother and I are the only two humans who love that movie, so if you've seen it and you love it, drop me a line. You can find the Sleeping Giant Podcast on the web at facebook.com slash the Sleeping Giant Podcast and on Instagram at the Sleeping Giant Podcast. If you're one of those highfalutin tweeters, you can come at me via at TSG underscore pod. All right then. Once more, I've been your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte. Thank you for listening to the Sleeping Giant Podcast. And until next time, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>